This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Vore and I'm your host. Today, I had the chance of talking with Hilary McBride, who's one of the hosts of the Liturgist podcasts, as well as a therapist and the author of a new book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. We talk about self-image, parenting, all sorts of things like that. Even if you're not a mother or a daughter or planning on being either of those, I still recommend both this episode and the book. I learned a lot from it in terms of the way that I consume media and the way that I interact with other people, the way that I see self-image and self-esteem and things like that. So definitely still worth your time. If you listened to last week's episode, you know that I have some guest lectures coming up from folks while I'm out with a new baby sometime in the next couple weeks or month or so. I wanted to let you know that some of those have started rolling in and we have some great things there as well that I'm not involved in. So super thankful to those folks. I can't wait for you to hear those and to share them with you. As always, if you like the show, feel free to support us at cxmhpodcast.com slash support. There's a ton of rewards, things like that. You can join the online community as well as spreading the word with friends and family online. However you do that, feel free to tag us in posts and things like that. Without too much further ado, here is an episode with author, therapist, and just great all-around person, Hillary McBride. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited today to be talking with Hillary McBride. Hillary is a PhD candidate at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, as well as a registered clinical counselor in private practice. Her clinical work includes complex and acute mental illness and supporting adults towards well-being with areas of clinical specialty focus in trauma, perinatal mental health, spirituality and mental health, women's relationships with their bodies, as well as quite an extensive bio here with your research and (laughs) awards and things like that. Hilary, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm so happy to be chatting with you today. Yeah, I think this is true. I scrolled back through and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm like 99% sure that you may be our first international guest on the show. Oh my goodness. Wow. What an honor. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, And even to be among the select few, if I'm not the first, that feels, feels like a, like a treat. So thank you. Absolutely. I should get some more in here. It's uh, probably a failing on my part. (laughs) uh, So (laughs) some people may also know you from uh, your work. I know that you've been the featured guest on a handful of podcasts, as well as recently now, you're one of the permanent hosts of the Liturgist podcast. It's true, I know. How did that come about? Ah, man, we just formed a relationship over um, me working on a few episodes and doing some meditations, and then they just asked me uh, late this fall, um, 
end of 2017. And I'm not sure what the decision process was, but I felt really <laughs> honored to be included. And uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a blast so far. So I've been down in LA not that long ago doing a bunch of recording and then heading oh. back down soon to do some more. And we do a little bit of remote work too. So we're making the international piece work yeah, just definitely. fine. Well, we had yeah. Science Mike back on one of the first few episodes actually of this podcast back when we started. So oh, yeah. big friends of big fans of the liturgists and the yeah, that they're doing. You're also the author of a book that came out late last year. So a big a big end of twenty seventeen mm. for you. Uh, it a book was entitled yeah. Mothers, Daughters and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are. Uh, can you yes, tell us a little bit about, I mean, what brought you into the work that you do in clinical mm -hmm. work and things like that, as well as, you know, what, what led you to focus on that area and write that book and, and things yeah. like that? Yeah, yeah. That's, there is so much backstory, so I'm glad that you asked the question. I don't know what it's like for other authors, but for me, the journey to write that book was long. I often say that I was preparing for it for decades because it came on the heels of my recovery from disordered eating and my journey towards what it meant to be a whole person and to stay in my body and to be me well mentally and physically and spiritually and to have healthy relationships. And I think it was a lot of fear that motivated me to do the research that I did because I kept coming back to this question and this fear that I had of what, what happens if I have a daughter one day who hates her body, yeah. hates herself the way that I did. So as part of my master's research, um, I was well into my journey of recovery from disordered eating and decided to research what it's like to love your body as a woman in this world, because we know from the empirical evidence that between 85 and 90% of women are totally dissatisfied with their appearance, with their body, with their mm. sense of self, that the numbers are so high that we're actually, a person is in the minority if they like themselves, if they like their body, yeah. when it comes to how women are socialized. And so I wanted to do research about what the opposite of that was, because we know a lot about why people hate their bodies, but we don't actually know a lot about what we can do to change that story and what it means to to be okay with who you are. So as part of my academic research, I looked at young women who loved their bodies and then did some adjunct research as well with their mothers to look at, did their moms have anything to do with that? And what about the intergenerational piece yeah. and how we pass messages from parents to children? And because not every woman is a mom, I wanted to write this book as well for us as women who don't have kids, but have been mothered and to think critically about the messages that we've been given and how those have shaped how we feel about our bodies. So after doing the research, there was this sense of urgency that I felt of wanting to share the messages with people so that it could help transform their lives. Because so often in academic research, what we do is we get all this information and then we publish it within academic journals that nobody has access to, <laughs> that stay kind of within the academic silos and don't get to the people who they could benefit most. So yeah. my whole purpose of writing this book was to take scientific research and make it accessible so that people felt like their their lives could benefit from from this work. 
Yeah, and I think even reading it, that's one of the things that struck me the most is there's so much academic research into it. So it's not just, you know, what somebody thinks about it, right. but it's yeah. it's interwoven so closely with mm. people's stories, not only your own story, although that's yeah. woven throughout, but then the stories of the women that you interviewed, both them and their yeah. moms. And, and I think it makes it more accessible, even, that's you know, right. I'm not a mother and I don't have a daughter and, you know, uh, <laughs> but even reading it as just a person in existence who, yeah. you know, there's so much of it that I feel resonated with me or parts that made me kind of rethink the way that I interact with not just women in my life, but just people in general or, yeah. or the media or things like that, you know? So I think it, it's phenomenal for anybody, you know, I've already recommended wow. it to a few friends. So. Wow. What an honor. Thank you so much. Yeah. So the, the long and the short of it really is that I, I've had so much suffering in my experience of being alive and with my body and I want to live my life in such a way that I can shape the story that I can help people not hurt the way that I've hurt and yeah. that I know that that I can turn the the pain that I've been through into something beautiful in my own life and into other people's lives and yeah. and so that's that's the backstory too and I think of that as being um Whenever I tell the story, it feels like redemption. It feels like pain doesn't get the final word, that suffering doesn't get the final word, that beauty and growth and thriving and transformation does. Yeah. So that relates a lot to some of the themes mm. kind of throughout the book, right, of mm -hmm. people choosing to use what they've been through to help their daughters specifically in the book but I mean mm. just in general to help people, the people that come after them to yeah. have a different experience than they've had, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it shapes our perspective differently than I think we normally feel about our lives. Normally when we're walking around in our lives, we're thinking about us and now and this moment and our future and all of the things that concern us. But if we think about the intergenerational narrative that we come from people and we're going towards people and we're part of a collective that's on a journey that extends way beyond the sense of individuality that we have that maybe if we change one little piece, that that's enough to give the next generation, whether it's a child that we birth or a niece or a nephew or kids that we teach in school or whoever it is, if we can shape their lives to give them something better than we had, then I think that there's value and meaning in that. Yeah. But sometimes we think about our lives from such, such an individualistic perspective that we miss we miss the larger story, which is that we belong to each other. We belong to this collective story and we have a role in, in shifting the cultural climate through the things that we do or don't do. Yeah. So when you talk about shifting the cultural climate and things mm -hmm. like that, one of the mm -hmm. things that you touch on in the book, which I love because even in other areas, it's so, it's so easy for us to find a problem that we see and then point, try to point to one thing and blame it on right. that. Right. I do a lot right. of research in suicide prevention areas stemming largely mm. from my own story. And it's right. so easy for people to say, well, it's because of bullying or it's because of right. you know, whatever point right. to one thing. And you talk about our tendency to blame just mothers or just yeah. the media or things like that. But you say that maybe that's not necessarily, it's not as easy as that. No, no. And I think that feels good because then we can tackle something. Then if we can point to something, then we can attribute blame to it, and then we can try to shape it, and then we feel good. Okay, I've reduced the risk for myself or somebody else. And to see the complexity of how things work together to impact our experience of suffering often leaves us feeling overwhelmed, like, oh, there's so many different pieces. 
And I think of the concept of epifinality and multifinality and how there are so many different reasons why people can end up with one form of suffering, like Hmm. all of the different reasons that influence alcoholism. It could be childhood abuse. It could be genetic predisposition. It could be depression. It could be workplace stress. It could be all sorts of things. And those, all of those things contribute to alcoholism. And then there's what we call multifinality, which is childhood abuse could end up resulting in all sorts of different problems, suicidality, depression, complex PTSD, alcoholism could be one of them. And there are these bi-directional influences where it seems like we can't ever say for sure that this one thing causes that one thing. Yeah. Because there's so much individual variability and epigenetic variability and contextual variability. But what we can do is we can look at complexities and models of making sense of those complexities and then say, okay, is there a piece of this that I can have an influence on? And I'm not going to assume that I'm going to change all of it just because of this one piece and I'm not going to feel like all of the problems are solved. But if we can chip away at that one little piece and maybe it makes it better for the people who come after us to chip away at the other little pieces. Yeah. So why did you focus on the relationship between mothers and daughters? Mm, Yeah. Well, when you start looking at eating disorder literature and body image literature, there's some pretty striking evidence to show that a mother's feelings about her body are more significant predictors of the child's feelings about their body than how the child felt about their body in the beginning anyway. Hmm. So it seems to be a very significant predictor, primarily between mothers and daughters, but also between mothers and sons, because mothers are most often at this stage in history and up until now, although we see some trends shifting, mothers are the primary caregivers. And so they're spending a lot of time with kids, giving them messages about bodies and about food and about self. And dads have an influence as well, but we just don't have as much research because dads aren't spending as much time with their kids. And Hmm. again, like I said, that we're seeing trends in that changing Right. right now in history. But when I started looking at the research, seemed like mothers were a really significant influence, but in most of the studies that I found, the only influence that I could see documented was the negative influence. And I thought, there's got to be more than this. If moms are really that powerful, then they can be powerful in the other direction too, but we just don't have the research to show it. So I'm going to go out and look at that specific thing. So my research actually looked at two, well, really three different pieces. One was how do young women feel about their bodies? And when they love their bodies as they are, what happens there? How does that develop? And then a second set of interviews that I did was with moms of those daughters and how those moms felt about their bodies. And then I did an analysis between the two groups and looked at how the messages that the moms gave the kids actually translated or not. And what was fascinating is so often, and this back is backed up in some other research, I asked the daughters to answer this question, my body is, and I asked the moms separately without them even having talked to each other to answer the same question. And so often the moms and the daughters without even deciding together gave the exact same word answer Mm. to that question. So we know that even the language that we're using is shaped by the language that we hear. What was fascinating too is that And this is probably the most striking piece about that research and why I really, really wanted to write this book is that the moms in the book and the moms in my study didn't necessarily love their bodies. And so there isn't a death sentence that 
the daughters can love their bodies even if the moms don't. That there is something that can move your kids forward even if you're not perfect. And that's meant to be a message of hope because I think with all of the literature about parenting and moms feeling this guilt and perfectionistic mentality from other moms and from within themselves of I I want to be perfect for my kids and I don't want to mess them up and I I want to do attachment parenting and all sorts of stuff. I think that there's a lot of pressure to to be this version of you that's not really even human. And the whole point is it's okay to make mistakes. It's how you respond to those mistakes that makes the difference. And even yeah. if you even if you struggle, it doesn't mean that your kids are going to hurt the exact same way. Yeah. You, I think right there, you hit on something that I had jotted down in my notes. You were mm. talking about a woman named Anne and her daughter, Kelsey. And you, yeah. you said this, you said that Anne wasn't perfect in talking about bodies or sexuality, but she was good enough. And a few weeks yeah. ago, I had a conversation with a trauma-informed counselor named Andy Colbert, and we talked a lot about attachment. And yes. she talked a lot about it and then said, but the good news is that you just have to be good enough, right? It's like, you know, essentially over 50% of the time, pay attention to your kids or whatever it was, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard that, like, we see that term actually come from Winnicott, who was an attachment therapist way back in the day, even before attachment theory was more popularized, but by Bowlby. But Winnicott was the one who coined this term, the good enough parent. And the good enough parent we now see in terms of attachment research and literature is being 70, 70% approximately, 70% attunement. So mm. that means it's okay if your kid is freaking out, but you're in the shower and you just need to take that one extra second to rinse the conditioner out of your hair. Your kid is not going to be totally screwed up by the fact that you weren't with them making eye contact, soothing them, calming them right. down. That <laughs> kids and, and babies and humans are resilient and we just need to be there most of the time, doing the best that we can as often as we can. But there is no version of being a parent that is healthy, that helps your kids thrive where you're perfect. Because, right. and this is what I tell clients all the time, because then what are your kids going to do when they make mistakes? If they've never seen anyone make a mistake... What do they do when they make a mistake? You're giving them, you're gifting them this narrative of adulthood that says you have to be perfect. And actually what's more adaptive is if you teach your kids when you make a mistake, here's what you do differently. You own it, you name it, you repair, you create closeness and you respond in a way that owns the mistake so that when they grow up, when they make mistakes with their kids, that they can do to their kids what you did to them, which is to take responsibility and to show to show their child that they're sorry, to yeah. own the mistake. So that kind of gets to this idea of truth-telling, right? You talk about mm-hmm. mothers being honest about their struggles and that yeah. kind of having a, a correlation with helping their daughters. But yeah. you also talk about speaking from scars and not from wounds. Right, right. And the idea with scars instead of wounds is that what you're doing is you have an, you ha- you're sharing a story when you have enough closure on it that you can give the wisdom away to your child without them feeling like they have to solve your problem for you. Because sometimes what happens is parents are trying to be honest and then they share the facts about the messy divorce with the kid and then they get so overwhelmed that the kid then feels like they have to do the emotional labor and be the parent's therapist. And that creates a a really unhealthy dynamic for a child where they don't have the space to feel their own pain 
and feel like they don't have to be the strong one in that moment. They have someone who can be the strong one for them. Mm. So sharing scars instead of wounds means that there's enough space and insight and distance from it just enough that you know that you can tell the story and if they ask questions that you're not going to get offended or re-wounded that it, you're not going to pull the scab off and have this new open wound to right. deal with that the kid then feels like they have to take responsibility for right it's kind of like for those of your listeners who are, are therapists like when we talk about self-disclosure if you're telling a client a story because you're wanting to work your stuff out with them not healthy. But if you're using a story of something you've been through as a way to illustrate transformation or humanness or growth or uh, a way to respond to something, then that kind of self-disclosure is okay. And again, yeah. there's a difference between the parent relationship and the therapist-client relationship. Right. <laughs> but I think that obviously what we're trying to do when we make a self-disclosure is use our story in a way that that opens up possibility and illustrates humanness and gives someone a real flesh and blood example of movement and healing. So mm. sharing your story is so important with your sharing it with your children, but again, in developmentally appropriate ways and in ways that help them feel like they don't have to take care of you, but they can understand things about the world that they wouldn't if you were pretending you never struggled. Yeah. So if we're if we're talking to uh, parents or mm -hmm. even just you know adult caretakers or people doing youth ministry or whatever it is, we can talk yeah. some about that side. But then you didn't write off the influence of media altogether or things like no. that, right? No. In fact, we have overwhelming evidence that media is influential. But I chose not to write a book about it because we've got so 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 much evidence that I didn't feel like I would be adding anything new. Yeah. So I wrote little chapters about it, but <laughs> it is such a significant influence that it can't be ignored, but there are more influences that we have yet to explore. Yeah. So if we, for just a brief second, yeah. talk about some media influences, and I think, I don't know if you're the same as me, but I know that it's such a common reaction to say like, oh, media today is ruining everything, whatever, look at this, right. that I tend to have kind of the opposite reaction of like, no, it's fine, like, because that oh. seems to be the easy, you know, so I think about right. my, my wife and I are expecting our first son. Uh, oh, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And so I often think about like, what is it that I'm going to, you know, I don't want to be the mm. parent that says you can't read this or that because, right, you know, right. the overprotective kind. But there is something, I mean, you talk about a woman named Sherry and kind mm. of her response to the things that her son sees or, mm -hmm. you know, the father fast forwarding through certain scenes that objectify women and things like right. that. So can you talk some about how can we, I guess, influence the media that our children see without yeah. kind of being the, the stereotypical, you know, no reading, no cable, no, you right. know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Well, while your kids' brains are developing, while we have young, influential brains, we want to be really careful about what's seen, especially since at, at a certain point, kids, or up to a certain point, kids don't have the ability to do critical thinking. There's just this kind of blind acceptance. They take something in and it shapes the way that they understand themselves and the world. And so up until a certain point, you don't want to be, you want, you don't want to have your kids viewing certain kinds of images. 
But they're going to come across certain things as they grow older, particularly preteen and teen years. They're going to go to their friend's house and you don't know what their friend's going to have right. on the TV or what they're going to be seeing at school. And so you want to be having conversations about what kind of media they're seeing and what their friends are engaging with and what they're showing them and then actually have critical conversations with them like, okay, so you saw that. Let's, let's talk about that. What was it like for you? What did you think? What did you feel? Do you, do you think that that's something that, you know, represents the world around you? And how did you feel about your body and other people's bodies after seeing that image? And sometimes we suggest doing something called co-viewing, which is sitting down with your children and watching what they're watching and having conversations about it with them. So noticing shows that they're watching and having questions with them about, you know, the visibility of certain ethnic minorities or the kinds of bodies that they see and the way bodies are sexualized. And so you can start that pretty young by asking your kids to think critically like, oh, I noticed that there's nobody on that show that looks like your friend Juan. Right. How come there's nobody on that show that looks like Juan? Oh, interesting. There's only white kids on that show. Huh. <laughs> That's really interesting. I wonder why Why don't they have people who look like your friends? Okay, right. well, maybe they don't have people who look like your friends, but maybe then we need to know that the show doesn't tell the truth about what the world looks like. Mm. Or, oh, that's really interesting that, what do you, you know, look at the way that the girls style their hair. What do you think about your hair when you see that? And having questions for the kids that get them to think critically about the media that they're viewing. And you can't do that if you're using, you're using the TV to babysit your kids. You can't do that if you just want to check out and you don't want to have hard conversations. And you also can't do that if you buy into the media yourself. And so it's Mm. important to get educated and to read critical discourse and content, literary content, I think particularly feminist and critical theory content that helps you get educated about the way that media proliferates narratives about value and appearance and status and worth as a human. And then once you're educated, have some critical dialogue with your children about how they can learn to think critically about that. Yeah, so you talk a lot in the book about media literacy, mm-hmm. which is what you're talking about here, right? Where yeah. we're not assuming, and you even have a quote from an APA task force on the sexualization of girls, but we're not assuming that girls or kids or anything are quote-unquote empty vessels, which right. everything that they think comes from the media, but we're also not kind of writing off that influence and saying, oh, it's fine, whatever right. it goes, right? Kind of You talked about talking about it and having conversations yeah. about all sorts of things. I mean, you even right there mentioned body image and racial makeup and things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, we don't want to communicate to people that they like, as you read in that quote, like we're just the products of the environment around us. We also have a way that we can meaningfully engage in the world, but that's not the only way that we exist. Cause I think a lot of us want to say like, Oh, advertising doesn't affect me. Well, <laughs> Maybe not consciously, but when we look at the real estate of our neuroanatomy, the amount of brain matter that's associated with conscious thought is actually a fraction of what exists in terms of our unconscious processes. And we have a whole cortex that's dedicated to taking in visual information, and that cortex is completely disconnected from our conscious thinking. So we've got so much happening to our brains by what we view, but we're not even aware of what we're viewing and how it's affecting us. So 
are we not affected? No, we just might not be aware of how affected we are. That being said, we can learn to be aware. We can learn to think critically and we can learn to understand the impact that media has on us so that we can start to choose what kinds of media we want to engage with based on how it makes us feel. So we've got pretty, pretty clear scientific evidence that shows us that when people look at, oh gosh, mainstream Mainstream media, things like magazines, although magazines aren't as popular now because we're seeing the rise of social media, right. but we see that overwhelming majority of people after looking at print media feel really crappy about their body when they're looking at advertisements in fashion magazines, that there is just this totally depressing feeling that comes on right. the heels of seeing images of people that will never look like how we look or we'll never look how they look, and, and they don't even look how they look because all of those images are edited anyway. Right. You actually referenced a study that I thought was really interesting where they showed uh, a group of, I think, just people, uh, mm -hmm. music videos and TV commercials and things like that, and then they showed another group, nature TV and commercials, and then right. with the first group, they kind of split them in half, and one half they showed... Right after that, you know, a little clip about how the models were tweaked and edited to look that way. Mm -hmm. And the different the different reports of those groups and how satisfied they felt with their appearance yeah. uh, based on whether they saw that or not, or mm -hmm. saw the extra clip that explained it or not, I thought was pretty impactful of, you know, all they did was add a 30-second clip about, hey, this isn't real. And yeah. they reported feeling much better about themselves than they had yeah. if they just saw the commercials. So if you think about the role of a parent, maybe the parent is the one who steps in and does what that little educational video does. Their parent steps in and says, hey, you know that's not real, right? And in doing that, you can buffer yourself and your kids against feeling that shame just from seeing images that they're going to see in the world anyway. And truthfully, when for people who aren't even parents, just for all of us, I think that that's an important way to view media. So when you're looking at images, noticing if you're feeling gross about yourself or if you feel more depressed or dissatisfied with your appearance, and when you see something that makes you feel that way, to engage in doing this self-reflective process and coaching yourself through to say, oh yeah, but they don't look like that anyway. Okay, and maybe I'm not a loser or a failure or ugly or not valuable if I don't look like that. Yeah. So we can coach ourselves through. We can do media literacy for ourselves, even if we don't have children. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of one of my next questions is, mm. if I'm not a mom and yeah. I don't have a daughter, which obviously yeah. is for me, but you know, we have, I would say, a fair share of our audience that is in the mental health field, but also yeah. that's in the ministry field or you know, right. some people that just want to listen and learn. You talked some about, throughout this, reevaluating your own definition of beauty, in including mm. the things that you first say to little girls when you see them. Yeah. You know, oh, you look so yeah. pretty, things like that. Yeah. Some of this obviously is, you know, if you're a parent, you can kind of co-view or things like that. But what about other people that have maybe not as much influence, but still influence on, you know, the little girls that you see or the little boys that you see or the youth group or, you know, what kind, right. of, what, what kind of impact do the rest of us have? Right. Yeah. Well, let's think critically about the thing that we say when we first see someone. So what is it that we focus on when we greet someone? Do we focus on their appearance or do we focus on 
how they make us feel. So there's a big difference between saying to someone like, oh, you look beautiful, or oh, what a beautiful dress, can you twirl, or whoa, like nice, you know, nice mustache that you're growing, 14 year old. I'm trying to think of like, what you, what do you say to a boy, like a teen boy when you greet him? Yeah. But we tend to focus on appearance for women and not for men. And we tend to over-focus on feminine ideals of appearance when we greet little girls. Mm. So what I like to suggest is that when you, when you see someone that you talk about how happy you are to see them and you ask them questions about their life and you share about yourself. So there's a big difference between saying, wow, you're so pretty, I love your dress, and saying, I'm so happy to see you. Mm. Wow, I feel so excited. I've been looking forward to seeing you all week. Can you tell me what's what happened this week? What do you, what's your favorite book? What, what are you reading these days? And man, are we ever really coached socially to just say something about appearance, especially when we don't know how to make conversation with somebody or little right. kids. Right. So with little, I was seeing a woman yesterday in therapy who brought her little baby in and I said, oh, what a cutie. Oh, like what a beautiful little girl. And I remember thinking, is that wrong to say? Should I say that? What? Right. You know? <laughs> as long as we're just asking questions about what we're saying and we're trying to focus on things outside of appearance. It's okay. We're not going to ruin someone if we acknowledge appearance. Appearance is an important part of our existence, but we don't want to give the message that it's the only thing that matters and that a certain kind of appearance makes a person more valuable than another kind of appearance. Yeah. So I always encourage people to focus on the academic term is non-appearance domains. So any <laughs> side, I know it sounds so dry when we think about the academic terminology, but to think about anything beside appearance, like activity or intellect or interest or um, a self-disclosure like I feel this way when I see you and wow I like the colors of the dress that you're wearing what's your favorite color right now focusing on anything besides reinforcing appearance ideals yeah and you know what honestly we just fall into these grooves socially where we say the thing that everyone said to us and that we've practiced saying and so sometimes the best way to think about trying to do something different is just to have a few key phrases in your head or in your back pocket that you can pull out when you need to so you don't have to wonder, oh, what should I say? What should I say? I'm going to say the wrong thing. How about you just say, so good to see you. Tell me what, what's happening in your life right now or yeah. who's, your, you know, who's your favorite friend or what's happening at school? What's your favorite book? Yeah. Anything that, that focuses on other aspects of being human besides appearance. Yeah, and what you're kind of referencing there, you talk about it a lot in the book, is this idea of like the whole self, right? And you yeah. even said it's not that we're discarding ideals of beauty or anything like that, like, hey, your appearance is not part of you at all, right? Which I think is kind of one extreme. Hey, it doesn't matter at all what you look like, not in terms of value, but like, hey, we're just going to ignore that entirely. Yeah, yeah. But kind of this idea of the the whole self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and encouraging people to see themselves as a whole self by reminding them that we see them as a whole self. Yeah. Hey, Sam Altus here, host of A Better Story Podcast. If you've had a hard time finding space in church, but you just can't shake that part of you that really likes Jesus, this is your podcast. We explore the things in life that lead us into living with more love, justice, and wholeness, and into better stories. Sometimes we look at stories from the Bible and see where they take us when we let them be surprising and subversive. And sometimes we talk to really interesting people like Will Gaffney, Shane Claiborne, Frank Schaefer, and Lisa Sharon Harper about their lives and the things that have led them into better stories. So if you're looking for a wider, more spacious view of faith, 
Check it out at a betterstorypodcast.com, in the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. So what, I mean, you talk some later in the book about some of the connections between spirituality and loving ourselves, loving our bodies. Mm-hmm. And one mm-hmm. of the things you talk about, kind of identify in asking some of the, the women that you talk to is beauty as being a pointer towards God, right? Like right. the created kind of pointing towards the creator. Did I say that right? Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So can you talk about that some? Yeah, absolutely. I think of um, some of the research that we have that shows that religion and religiosity can be a predictive factor for disordered eating and body shame, that our sense of having lots of rules to follow and feeling like we are a bad person if we don't follow those rules and that we're going to be rejected by God and by our community can leave us feeling like we have a lack of control and like we don't matter and we're only as valuable as our last choice or our last sin or whatever it is. And yet we see that spirituality can be a protective factor. So outside of religiosity and the sense of um, the importance of the rule following piece, that having a sense of connection to the divine, to a God that is bigger than us and even bigger than our rules and a God who is loving and compassionate, that that can help us feel like we have goodness in us, even when the world around us has told us that we don't. So if the world around us is telling us that our worth and our value is based on our weight and our appearance and how sexually attractive, you know, our community will find us, then if we don't look the way that we're told that we're supposed to, it can create a sense of distress or um, maybe even depression, dissatisfaction. But if we can go to another story, a story that's bigger than the cultural story, one that says, no, we're actually created beings and we have worth and value that extends beyond what our culture says, then that can be a protective factor. Hmm. So I like to think if you could imagine a little circle, and if you've got a little circle and you're, you exist within the boundaries of that circle and that circle tells you what you need to do to be loved, that's great if you're inside that circle, but what happens if you find yourself on the outside of that circle? What happens if the things that you're told make you lovable don't, don't meet who you are or you can't claim those as part of your identity? Yeah. And then if you imagine drawing a much, 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 much bigger circle, well, I think about that as being what I learned from my participants as being how they conceptualize the love of the divine, that there is this source of love that is far, far, far bigger than anything the culture says about what makes them valuable. Mm. And that that bigger circle, the love of God, the love of um, our creator, ultimately encompasses pretty much every form of human existence, every form of life, every form of um, humanity. And we can find ourselves within that sense of belonging, within that sense of love, even if we're not inside the smaller circle. Hmm. I love that because it not only, I mean, obviously there's a lot to do with culture saying that you have to look a certain way to earn Mm -hmm. value, but I know that for some people it's, you know, success, financial success, or it's, you know, what you can provide for these people or, you know, other, other things. And so to kind of step out of that and say, that isn't what determines your value. There's this other thing, this, you know, the love of God or however people want to phrase it, I guess, but kind of, 
opting out of those cultural ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and reminding ourselves that when we opt out, we opt into something else. That we're not mm. opting out into this wilderness of not knowing and uncertainty and who am I and where do I belong, but we're opting out of something for something bigger and better and something ultimately that doesn't change ever. So it doesn't change ever. In theory, that sounds great. (laughs) How do we, either for ourselves or for the people around us, I mean, how do we help make that happen? I mean, that sounds Mm -hmm. great, but, you know, in 20 minutes, people aren't going to be listening to this anymore. They're going to be back talking to their friends or, you know, back at their job. Mm -hmm. And that that seems tricky at at Yeah, absolutely. Well, it starts by constructing... And being with other people who have a similar construction of who God is and what God is. And if you're with people who don't have this, if you don't have a way of reinforcing that the bigger circle exists and that there is a God who is loving and kind and compassionate and ultimately way more loving than any other attribute that we could ever attribute to God, that it's really hard to feel like you can be part of that bigger circle because maybe that bigger circle doesn't exist. So engaging in a community and spiritual practices, which help you return to this knowing and this understanding and this relatedness to a loving, a loving and kind and compassionate God, that sets the framework. But Mm -hmm. then the piece is to notice that you can choose to remind yourself about those things as a source of comfort. So I feel really crappy about myself today when I'm looking in the mirror. Oh man, I wish... I wish I could do this, or maybe I shouldn't even leave my house. I have some people who say they can't even leave their house because they feel so much shame about their appearance. And then to remind themselves in that moment, no, that's a story. To even consciously do the deconstruction of that thought and to say, no, that's a story that I was told that fits within the smaller circle, but Mm. there's a bigger circle. And if I exist in a place of knowing that I'm loved, that there is a bigger circle that contains me. How do I behave from that place? And can I act that out and trust that by acting it out at some point, I'm going to feel it on the inside too. Hmm. So those are, there's little things that people can do individually, but I don't think that we exist in individuality. We exist in a community and in a context. And so surrounding yourself with people who, who love you and support a vision of humanness and appearance that is a lot more gracious and loving and accepting. That's important. Therapy is important. Changing the media that you engage with is important. Um, being careful about your thought life and noticing when your thought life is destructive to yourself. And then I think engaging in embodiment practices that remind us that we are so much more than just an appearance, that we are living and feeling and breathing and touching and sensing human beings can get us unstuck from seeing ourselves just as a as an appearance. Yeah. Hey, if you want to connect with Hillary, you can find her online at hillarylmcbride.com, on Twitter at hillarylmcbride, on Instagram at McBride, or go on Amazon. You can buy this book, Mothers, Daughters, and Body Image, Learning to Love Ourselves as We Are, or you can pre-order her new book coming out late 2018, Embodiment and yeah. Eating Disorders, Theory, Research, Prevention, and Treatment. Uh, that is probably going to be a more specific segment of the audience. That sounds like a more kind of academic, clinical, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. 
it's a textbook um, and handbook. Embodiment is this really ancient concept that's really kind of making an emergence. And so we're pulling together all of the embodiment research and theory to make sense of what it is and how it can be a health intervention and a spiritual and philosophical pursuit as well. So uh, not a light read, but <laughs> super rich and cutting edge, cutting edge stuff in right. terms of mental health. Yeah. yeah. You can also listen to The Liturgists wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, if you want to connect with me, you can find me at robert-vore.com or on social media at Robert Vore. Hillary, before we go, do you have mm-hmm. any closing words for people listening that maybe are struggling with how they see themselves mm-hmm. or are feeling stuck in that? Yeah, yeah. Just my, my heart breaks knowing that you're hurting in that way because I identify with that. That was a part of my identity that consumed my existence for so long. And so I think what I want to say first is I'm sorry and that you're not alone and I hold hope for you and it doesn't have to be this way forever. And there's so much more to who you are than your suffering, than your appearance. And those are also not things that diminish or devalue your worth as a human being. If you're struggling, if you're in pain, that doesn't make you less lovable. And so my hope for you is that in your sense of hearing this and feeling maybe not alone, like there's hope, that you can envision an existence for yourself that is rich and full and complex and is compassionate towards yourself and towards others. So good. Hillary. thank Mm. you so much for being here and talking with us. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thanks so much, Robert. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.